Good morning. <clears throat> Sorry about our uh, projector not working, but uh, being a high-tech person that I am, <laughs> you know, if it were if it were up to me, we'd have a big marker board up here and be handwritten. <laughs> But uh, that's about all I know about technology. Uh, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, the first chapter, beginning at the 18th verse. Romans 1, 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, for they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish, their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Father, we thank You. Father, your word is truth. Lord, no matter what uh, others may say, uh, Lord, these are the eternal words of our, of our God. And Lord, you are the God of creation. You're the God of glory. And you deserve our praise this day. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> this morning, I want to look at a theological concept or teaching that to many is both despised and rejected. And, th and that teaching is this, that there is a wrathful, a wrathful attribute with God. There are some people who just don't believe that. They're not willing to accept the idea that, and all, that, that God is a God of wrath. On, all they believe is that God is a God of love. As a matter of fact, you know, they, they, we look at Scripture and, and, and prove to ourselves that God is a God of love. And so we will look at John 3, 35, it says that the Father loves the Son. We look at John 14, 31, it says the Son loves the Father. We look at John 3, 16, it says God loves the world. And in Galatians 2, 20, now who could forget that, that God loves me. And on and on and on and on. And we pull up all these verses that talks about the love of God. And in fact, in 1 John 4, 8, 4, 8 it, 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 it comes to this climax. It says, God is love. So there are those who are unwilling to, to believe that there is a wrathful side of God. That God loves everybody. That God wants, that everybody is under the umbrella of God's love. That there is no wrath of God. That when we die, God's love will overcome all, all obstacles and all sin. That everything is conquered by God's love. That God will not do anything to us. 
that would show or demonstrate any wrath whatsoever because God loves us. So then, from all this, we may easily surmise that, that God has good intentions for everybody. That's, that's what we think, or many think that, that God has good intentions for everybody, that He loves everyone, and therefore He would never do anything to hurt or harm anyone. Now, I ask you this question, is that your view of God? That God is, that God is just a God of love. There is, there is nothing, there is nothing in all this universe that would cause God to demonstrate any wrath toward anyone or anything. That God is just a God of love. Love, love, love. You know, that's all the world needs is love, right? Well, folks, if, if this thinking is true, then we've got a gigantic, a huge, enormous, a monstrous theological problem facing us right here in Romans 1.18. Because in Romans 1.18 we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So where does this wrath come from? If God loves everybody... And God would not do any harm to anybody. God would not send anyone to hell. Then where is this wrath coming from that we're reading about? Did Paul make a mistake or something? As you probably already know, there are are such a thing called the, the attributes of God. And these attributes are usually listed in at least five separate categories. And under each category, there are, there are different headings under each category. And, and one of those categories is God's moral attributes. One of those five categories is God's moral attributes. And under that category, there are several items listed, several attributes listed under those moral attributes. And two of them, two of them are love and wrath. Under God's moral attributes, under the category of moral attributes, two of those several listings are love and wrath. So now this question, if God loves, if God loves that which is honest and right and good, that is, those things that are, that are in harmony with his moral character. If God loves those things that are in harmony, in concord with his moral character, then would it not be right to say that God would, would hate those things which are opposed to his moral character? If he loves those things which God loves, that are part of his moral character, then isn't it right to say that God hates those things that are opposed to that character, that moral character? Well, of course it would be right to say that. And what is the thing that God hates? Sin. God hates sin. 
Not only do we find his wrath towards sin found in Romans 1.18, it talks about God's wrath towards sin, but also we find it in Romans 2.5, Romans 2.8 5.9, and 9.22. And that's just in the book of Romans. We're not looking at anywhere else in all the Bible, just out of the book of Romans. I gave you five or six illustrations or, or, or verses to look at where it says that, that, God, that, that God is a God of wrath and God hates the idea of sin. So if anyone believes that God is just a God of wrath, then, then how, how, do we, how do we handle those verses that tell us that God is a God of, of wrath and God hates sin and that God's wrath will be displayed against sin and those who commit sin? So now listen to this. There is the antithesis of God's wrath found in Romans 1. That is, if Romans 1 has this view, and then there is a, a separate opposite, a, a polar opposite view found in Romans 1. In Romans 1, 7, in Romans 1, 18, we, we, we learn about the wrath of God. But in Romans 1, 17, we read of the righteousness of God. The wrath of God in all, in all reality addresses God's justice. While the righteousness of God is that which the gospel of Jesus Christ provides and therefore meets the requirements of God's justice. Let me, let me add this. Give you this illustration. Here is a judge. And this person comes, male or female, comes and, and is, stands before the judge. And an uh, argument is made as to why this person is guilty. And this person is absolutely guilty. Absolutely guilty. You know, they voted for the Yankees to beat the, the Cardinals or whatever it was. They're guilty of something. So they stand before. They stand before the judge. The judge knows he's guilty. The prosecutor knows he's guilty. The defense attorney knows he's guilty. The jurors know he knows he, he's guilty. And, and the people who are listening to this knows, everybody knows, everybody knows this person's guilty. And the judge, the judge says, you know what? I'm going to declare you innocent. Is that judge wrong? What do you think? Is that judge wrong? I saw a couple of heads nodding. What if that judge said, you know, I'm going to throw the book at you. And I, listen, we're going to put you in the electric chair for five years. When, you, when we're done with you, you're going to look like a charcoal briquette. Is that judge wrong? You see, it's a matter of justice and mercy. If, if the judge administers justice, say, brother, you deserve to die, then he cannot show mercy. But if the judge shows mercy, if he shows mercy, then where's the justice? Can a judge... Be just and merciful at the same time. 
What if that judge says, I tell you what, I know that you are guilty, but here is my son, and I am, we're going to tie him to a stake, and we are going to beat the living tar out of him because of your sin, because of your wrong, that he is going to pay for your sin. So they tie him to a stake, and they take a whip, and they just beat him to death. So there we have both justice and mercy being demonstrated. The only way that that man can receive mercy is if somebody else pays for the justice that's due. But no sane person would do that, would they? But God did that. God found all of you and myself, found us guilty. And he had his son nailed and tied to a cross. And they beat the life out of him. So that God could be both just and merciful. When you look at the cross, you see a picture of God's wrath. Christ was beaten so badly that you could not even recognize who he was. From the face on down, you could not recognize who he was. Jesus bore God's wrath. Jesus bore God's justice so that you and I could receive God's mercy. That love, love demands justice. God's love demands justice. God's love demands that sin be paid for. So don't ever tell anyone that God is just a God of love and not a God of wrath. Because how could you say that and look at the cross? That there is no wrath of God. So in, in what Christ has done, we have or find grace and mercy and peace and the permanency of our unseparated standing. In the gospel, the believer has the benefit of the righteousness of God revealed as opposed to the wrath of God being demonstrated in our lives. Because what should have happened is God says, none of you are saved. None of, none of you will have eternal life with me. All of you will spend eternity in hell because you deserve it. It is just it is the right thing to do. And then some of us will quibble and argue with God and say, well, why should I be saved but not my, my brother, my sister, my aunt, my uncle, my cousin, my friend, my neighbor? Why shouldn't they be saved? What's wrong, God? Why would you save me and not these other people? Because all of us, all of us deserve to die and spend eternity in hell. It is by grace that you are saved. Strictly by grace that you and I are saved. We do not deserve it. It isn't some decision that we made. 
It is a work of God's divine sovereign will in our lives that we are saved. And yet at the same time we find excuses why we would not want to come and worship Him, the person who saved us when we deserve hell. How then in verses 18 and 19... Uh, we, uh, or now then we're told in verse 8 and 9 that we are told that why God's wrath is evident among people. Why, why, do, why does God show His wrath? Number one, it says in verse 18 that they suppress His truth. They suppress the truth about God. That is that they are holding back the truth that God is the Creator. We have intelligent, intelligent people who believe that we are absolutely accidents. And because we are accidents, you know, that, that we originate of some inorganic rock somewhere. And that rock somehow gave life to some living specimen, some cell. <clears throat> and that cell evolved and kept on evolving. Now, folks, I want to just, let me just, just ask you a question. If I were to take that offering plate, if you were to look at that offering plate and, and you were to set it on one side of a table and you were to take my wristwatch and put it on the other side of the table, do you think in 10 billion years time that that offering plate can become this wristwatch? I mean, this is a complex watch. I think it cost a dollar three eighty. It costs more than that, but it's got all kinds of gears and things in it, doesn't it? And it's got a hand that moves around like this. You have an inorganic piece of material going to form a mechanical piece of material. It could sit there for a hundred billion years. And would not happen. If that, if that were the case, I would park my little Ford Fusion in my garage and wait for it to grow up to be a Bentley. <laughs> but guess what? Ain't going to happen. You know it and I know it. That if there is, listen, folks, if there is order and design, there must be a designer. Science will tell you that there must be a cause for every effect. An effect for every cause and every cause. Except because I, we did a study on this in my evolution class that we had over here. Except they believe that the universe either came from a boom and all of a sudden, all this inorganic stuff became, became alive, or, or it just happened to be there. One brilliant Nobel Prize winner said that uh, life on this planet was formed when aliens, I don't know what border they crossed, but aliens came, 
what planet they came from. Folks, this is stupid. I don't know. Is this what we are really teaching people? That we should be little green people, one-eyed, purple people eaters coming from somewhere, and we this is what they formed? That which was evident about God, that which was evident that they suppressed the truth This truth is seen in creation, but the evil intentions of the heart causes many to suppress, to hold back the truth because they just simply refuse to have the idea of God in their intellectual knowledge. Number two, that the truth is evident but rejected. And why is this? Any casual observation regarding creation should be enough for the mind to come to the reason with a position that there must be some intelligent designer. If something is a revelation to us, listen, if something is a revelation to us, that is creation, you look at creation. If there's a revelation to us that there is creation out there, and if you have eyeballs, you can see that, that there's creation. Forget who made it. There's a revelation that you have, that you see empirically with your eyeballs, that there is, or even if you don't have eyes, you can feel it under your feet. There is something out there that's keeping me here on this terrestrial sphere. Then it must make sense that there must be something, if there is something revealed to us, then there must be something in us that makes this revelation possible. I go out and I see creation. I ask myself, how is this possible? Well, I know I didn't make it, and I don't think I know anyone smart enough to make it, so there must be someone or something that made this. Is that not simple to deduce, or am I just fooling myself? Somebody had to put this together. The only possibility that comes that makes any sense is that God fashioned us with a thing called the mind. And is it possible? Is it possible? And could it be that the mind given us by God is result is a result that this thing that I have that allows me to have self-determination? And will. And develop relationships with people. That this thing given me up in, in here somewhere. That perhaps when God created me. And God created you. That he breathed into you a breath of life. That makes you different from any other created being. He did not make you an animal to roam this world with instinct, but he made you a human being to roam this world with reason. And by the way, not only reason, but the ability to exercise faith with that reason. 
I could look at creation and say, you know what? I didn't make this. Nobody I know made this. But by faith, I believe that a supreme being called God made this. I cannot see God. I cannot fully explain God. I'm a finite creature. I cannot explain the infinite. But I believe that God created this. And I do so by faith. Not by reason, but by faith. There is no animal alive that can exercise that ability. Well, Bonzo the gorilla, do you, do you believe that God made this? You go to New York City, and you see the Empire State Building. By the way, that thing is 90 years old. Are you aware of that? That's why I'm not good. I'm afraid it will collapse. But 90 years old. It was made in 1933. It'll be 90 years old next year. 90 years old. I could look at the Empire State Building. I say, you know what? That used to be just a pile of rocks. But 10 billion years ago, it just happened to come together. I could look at that building and say, you know what? People put that together. People put that. Why do I know that? Because I know it didn't form itself. I, reasoning it out, could say that man, mankind, put that building up. But I could look at the universe and say, you know what? Just an accident. Just an accident. Friends, please understand, there is no possible way that we can know all that there is to know about God. The finite can only have limited knowledge of that which is infinite. But the finite can know enough about the infinite to lead them to determine that which is the chief end or aim for all of us. You know, that we, we should all understand this, that, that my and your chief aim, the chief aim of our life, it's not to make a million dollars. It's not so that we can be the next American idol. Or not to be the next one to go to Las Vegas and with a million dollar contract and, and dance before people. That the chief aim of all humanity is for us to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is our chief aim. Those things that God in His wisdom has revealed to us, belonged to us, and to be received and enjoyed by us. So then, do we know all things that there is to know about God? No, we don't. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us. I cannot know all there is to know about God. I do not know all about His Word. There are some things that are puzzling to me. I don't know all of it. I've studied it for 50 some odd years. I don't know all of it. I never will. Nobody that's ever lived will know all there is to know about God's Word. We can only scratch the surface of it. Because if it's His Word, it is infinite as He is. His Word abides forever. In verse 21 of our text, we continue to find that mankind is refusing to acknowledge that God is Creator. His handiwork is evident. 
yet they continue in their unbelief. And notice, as it states in this verse, they became futile in their speculations. It has never, never, never been stated in any biblical reference that a person's mind is a religious vacuum. Just devoid of it. Never. Listen, if there would be such a thing as the absence of truth, if there is such a thing as the absence of truth, then we should conversely say that there exists in the mind the presence of that which is false. If there is no truth, then there must be a lie. If the mind is set off to one side regarding what is true, then it must be then that the same mind becomes a magnet for a thousand foolish ideas. So what we in reality have is a self-induced foolishness, not one that is a religious vacuum that God has created, but there is a self-induced foolishness that that darkens a person's intellectual ability. How do we know this? Because the Word of God, the, the absolute, the inerrant, the infallible Word of God says in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, listen to what it says, and if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Something, not God in His creation, but something has darkened and blinded the minds of people from the truth. And what is that something that's done that? Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air. So then, what would then follow this? Verses 22 and 23 tells us, They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Listen, folks, they substituted God who is worthy of our worship and began to worship something else. What are, what are we worshiping today? We worship that which is around us. We've got to take care of this atmosphere. And I hear, oh, if we don't do what is right, there's going to be a nuclear explosion and the whole world is going to just be blown to smithereens. Folks, let me tell you, if you believe all that, then God's word is wrong because it says that God will renovate this world and not nuclear holocaust. God will renovate this world. I'm not saying that there will not be some nuclear explosions. There may be. But it is God who will renovate this world, not mankind. Don't listen to the foolishness of man. Believe what the Word of God has to say. Let me come to a final thought. By the way, by the way, one commentator said this. All idolatry... When we start worshiping other things or whatever, all, all idolatry is the fruit of unworthy views of the Godhead. 
So when we hear things and, and they talk about something else as being, you know, wonderful and all idolatry is the fruit of an unworthy view of who God is. So now we come to this final thought. If or should humanity manufacture for themselves some idolatrous God, if we should come up with some idolatrous God that we're going to worship, then what would be the result of that in the present sense of it? So I come up with an answer, a biblical answer. In, in Exodus chapter 32, let me give you a background of this, and we'll close here in a few minutes. In Exodus 32, Moses has been up on Mount Sinai, and God's writing out the Ten Commandments for him, you know. And uh, he's writing it out in English. <laughs> he's writing out the Ten Commandments. Actually, it's called the Ten Words. So God's writing, his, his, finger, his finger imprint is on, on tablets of stone. Moses has been up there for six weeks. The people haven't seen Moses for six weeks. The people say to Aaron, Aaron, we ain't got no leader, and we ain't got no God. They didn't use quite that language, but you're getting the drift of this. We have no leader. We have no God. We don't care about the leader, but Aaron, come make us a God. Are you, are you hearing this? Exodus 32, Aaron, forget the leader. Come make us a God. It says exactly, 32.1 of Exodus, come make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, we don't know what has become of him. We don't care about the leader, just make us a God. So in Exodus 32, Israel's hearts had turned away from the one true God and so they wanted a God, they wanted a God who will take them to where they wanted to go. Not where God wanted them to go. They were tired of following God. Do you understand this? That they're following God now for a long time. We are tired of following God. We want to follow a God that will take us to where we want to go. So Israel, where do you want to go? We want to go back to Egypt. Because in Egypt we had leeks and fish and garlic and onions. Well, that would not be my preference for a <laughs> diet. But that's what they wanted. Leeks and fish and onions and garlic. You can chain us up. You can beat us. You can make us sweat, work by the sweat of our brow. You can deprive us. You can kill our children. But give us leeks and onions and fish and garlic. Fill our tummies and we will be your slaves. We want a God who will take us back there. Forget the promised land. Forget a land flowing with milk and honey. Forget, God, forget the idea that you set a course, a direction for us. We want to go back this way. My friend, is that what you want?
Is that what we want? Is that what we want? Do we want to go back this way? Or do we want to look at the God of creation? The God who put all things together. The God who holds the universe together. The God who has named and numbered every star in the heavens. Who would you want to follow? Where is your heart telling you that you should go? Back to captivity? Back to what you were before you became a believer? Back to a life without faith? Back to where you suppress the knowledge of God as creator and as sustainer and redeemer? You want to go back to captivity to where Satan is your prince and you are his servant? Jesus says, Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Where would you go? Let's pray. Father, weigh heavy upon our hearts that you are our God and we need to follow you. Lord, that there is not just a God of love, but Lord, you're a God of wrath too, Lord. Lord, this world has so many who just absolutely do not acknowledge you at all, Father. And your word says that your wrath abides upon them. We're going to find out later in this chapter that you will literally give up on them. Father, we ask in the name of Jesus, do not give up on us, Father. If we have backslidden, turned our backs to you, Lord, please draw us back to you. Lord, return to us the joy of your salvation, Lord. Let us acknowledge you as the God that you are. Lord, you love us because justice has been meted through Jesus Christ. And we are loved in the beloved. Now, Father, open our hearts up to make a commitment to you this day, Father, that we will be your followers, that you will be our Lord, you'll be our master. We'll not follow the ways of this world, Father, but we'll follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.